three and a half weeks ago, I get another email from Russ. He says, oh, by the way, that's Father's Day. I don't like doing holiday things <laughs> like this. But I will tell you this. Father's Day is better than Mother's Day if you're the preacher. So I said, sure. So now I got really serious about thinking about what I was going to say. And um, so I, I put a little work into it, and I'm thinking about it, and I, uh, I came up with a title because he said I needed to send a title over, God's Plan for a Man. And, uh, you know, so I was working away, and I thought all of a sudden, you know, that sounds a little bit presumptuous. Like maybe I have some kind of, like an angel came and talked to me, or... I had a vision from God, and he told me this is God's plan for a man, and this is what you're supposed to talk about. So let me tell you something else about me. When I was in seminary many, many years ago, I got to my last days of seminary, not weeks. My last few days of seminary, I was taking a, a, a three-week, five-day-a-week class from a Chinese Christian who was in his early 70s, Dr. Litson Chang, and the class was on the history of missions in the Orient, of all things. The only reason I took that class was because my advisor had stressed to me over and over and over again, <coughs> you have to take a class from Dr. Chang. So I just needed, you know, the credits from one more class. I would have never signed up for that class. But God changed me in those three weeks. You know how he changed me? What I had mouthed correctly about my belief, for many, many years, I came to believe. Because I had mouthed for many, many years, and even passed theology exams. The Bible is a book from God, without error in the originally manu original manuscripts. Verbal plenary inspiration, the only rule for life and faith. And then, sitting under Dr. Chang for three weeks, I got it. And it changed my life. I came to believe the Bible is a book from God. So, what I want to share with you this morning I've entitled God's Plan for a Man. Didn't come from a dream. I didn't have an angel visit me. Jesus didn't, you know, give me some special revelation. It comes, from, I hope, from the scriptures. And God's plan for a man, obviously, men, it's directed at you. So, ladies, listen in, but here's how I want you to think about these things I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share. You know, we go to the doctor many times in life, and usually we just go to a doctor. You know, we don't go to a woman doctor or a man doctor. Well, sometimes we do, but most of the time we just go to a doctor. Doctor, I broke my leg. Can you fix it? Doctor, my children need to be inoculated. Can you give them what they need? I've got this cough that just won't go away. My back is killing me. We just go to a doctor. But sometimes, you know, you ladies go to a woman doctor. 
And sometimes us men go to a men doctor. That's kind of how the Bible is. Most of what it has to say, it just says to us as people, as Christians, as believers. But sometimes it speaks to us as men or as women. So this morning, what I'm going to share really, men, is focused on you. God's plan for a man. But ladies, I think there's something you can get out of it as well to apply to your life. Now, when I talk about God's plan for a man, according to what the Bible says, you know, I understand, believe me, I understand, a lot of people believe the Bible is a book nobody can really understand. And if you get too dogmatic about it, well, somebody else will not agree with you or contradict you. But let me tell you something about the Bible. It is a very simple book. And I can give you a little key to unlocking the Bible and understanding it. Now, it's not just a simple book. I mean, C.S. Lewis, a man whose writings changed my life in so many ways, one time he wrote this, the Bible is not a children's book. And I remember I made a mistake in a sermon I preached one time. I said, the Bible's not a book for children. That's not true. But the Bible's not a children's book is true. So it's very simple, and I can give you the key that will unlock it. But it's the most profound book ever written. So here's the key that unlocks the Bible. From start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is a book about Jesus. When you get that, it unlocks the book. So, so think about the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. Here's how, here's the key that will unlock that book. The human race has a horrible problem. Our problem is moral. And God's going to send somebody to fix the problem. You know, our problem isn't that this earth doesn't provide enough food for everybody. So why is there famine? Oh, because some people don't want to share. Sometimes on an individual basis and sometimes on a national or global basis. The human problem is not that we're not smart enough to figure things out. People are very smart, very, very clever. The problem is we lie to each other. We hate each other. Sometimes we murder each other. So the Old Testament, here's how to understand it. The human race has a horrible, horrible problem. It's moral. God's going to send somebody to fix the problem. Now, when we think of the Old Testament, a lot of times we think of the law because the Old Testament is all about the law. But guess what? The law was never intended to fix people. I was working on one of my vehicles this past week. I, was, I crawled underneath it. And uh, you know it was dirty under there. And I uh, got done what I was doing, came out, went in to wash up, looked in the mirror, 
Here, I had a glob of grease right across my forehead. I wouldn't have known it unless I looked in the mirror. Guess what? Looking in the mirror didn't take the grease away. See, that's what the law is. The law shows us our problem, doesn't fix the problem. So the Old Testament says, in a hundred clever ways, God is going to send somebody to fix the problem. Now, the New Testament's exactly the same, only it says it this way. The human race has a horrible problem. Our problem is moral. We do the wrong things. And the somebody that God promised to send has come. We murdered him. But he conquered sin and death. Okay? So the Bible is a simple book. It's about Jesus, but it's a profound book. So now we think about God's plan for a man. One of my favorite modern-day authors is Ravi Zacharias. In one of his books, Dr. Zacharias says, there are four questions that every religion is trying to answer. Now, he says only Christianity answers the four questions in a way that are consistent throughout. But here are the four questions. Number one, origins. Number two, purpose. Number three, morality. Number four, destiny, origins. Where did everything come from? Where did the universe come from? Where did we come from? And then purpose. Why are we here? Why do we suck oxygen into our lungs 70, 80 years? Why do we eat food? Why do we go about do the things we do? Morality. How do we know what's right and wrong. If we don't have a voice from above, believe me, that's a hard one. It seems like it would be simple. It's really very difficult. And the fourth question, when we die, where do we go? So now, as we think about God's plan for a man, what the Bible very clearly says, I want us to think about it in light of those four questions, <coughs> origin, purpose, morality, destiny, and I want to take us to the Old Testament. I'm going to take us right to the beginning of the Old Testament, to the book of Genesis. Now, before we look at the very first verse, I want to say this about Genesis. If you open your Bible and read Genesis, you will see it has how many chapters? Anybody know? How many chapters in Genesis? 50 is the answer. I know you're all about to say that, right? If you were Moses who wrote the book of Genesis, however, it doesn't have 50 chapters. The chapter and verse division was added about in the 16th century by a guy by the name of Stephanus. And so we have 50 chapters in our Genesis, but when Moses wrote it, he had the same words, Hebrew, but he had prologue to the book and then either 10 or 11 chapters. And here's what the prologue is. Fully inspired by God, Moses took a very big brush and he went whoosh. And he gave us truth about our origins. 
The prologue is all of our chapter one and the first three verses of chapter two. Then in verse four of chapter two, Moses started his chapter one. And you can see it right through the book of Genesis, the 10 or 11 chapters, everyone begins the same way. This is the account of. So Moses' chapter one, it goes from verse four of chapter two, all through chapter two, all through chapter three, right to the end of chapter four, and then you come to chapter five, which is Moses's, the start of Moses' chapter two, okay? So this is the account of the heavens and the earth. And then chapter two, this is the account of Adam's line. Okay, so God's plan for a man and we start with a prologue where Moses takes the big brush. And he started in exactly the right place, folks. Genesis, the Bible starts exactly right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Think about it. You know, I was, uh, for about three or four years of my life, I was a committed evolutionist. You know, I heard the arguments, I bought it. And thanks to God, I came across some pretty scientific stuff that says what we call macroevolution, not possible. It is not possible that we're an accident. You know where Charles Darwin probably made his biggest mistake? Back in 1859 when he wrote his book. They thought the universe was eternal. But Moses got it right. We know today there was a beginning because we've heard the echo of the Big Bang. And we can see the universe is expanding. So Darwin thought the universe is eternal. God's a myth. We know today the universe had a beginning and God is eternal. So Genesis 1, 1, it's very, I could spend the whole hour talk about that, but you don't want me to. Or do you want me to stay here two hours? All right. In the beginning, oh, there was a beginning. Before the creation, smart people, a lot smarter than me, tell us there wasn't even time. We can't think that way. But before time began, and I can show you two places in the New Testament where it says that, before time began. Oh, how did the apostle Paul understand nuclear physics back in the first century? He was inspired by God. And Moses got it right. In the beginning, God. God's eternal. God's outside of the universe. Now this is all very important for us, folks, because it gives us meaning. We're not accidents. So here's what we know from science. The universe began with what scientists call a Big Bang. It was incredible. The best explanation I've heard of it is the opposite of a nuclear explosion. You know what a nuclear bomb does? You take a little uranium-235 or a little plutonium and they, if they jam it together in a very clever way and a, a few pounds 
of matter turns into energy. Well, the creation of all the matter in the universe was the opposite of that. It was an unbelievable amount of energy that in an instant was turned into matter. How did God do that? And by the way, it wasn't a random explosion. Physicists tell us it was precise, 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 precise beyond our ability to comprehend. And so the universe was born by God who is eternal. And when Jesus said, it's recorded in John chapter 4, God is spirit. And they who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. How did a spirit being conceived of a material universe and created out of nothing with all the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology that ended up with us? So Dr. Ravi Zacharias's four questions, the first one, origins. Oh, Genesis 1-1 answers it. And then the, the rest of the prologue, and I'm not going to go into it, goes through how God reached into his original creation like six times and created some more. And the last time he reached in, guess what he made? People! He made us! So let me read it to you. Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Oh, bingo. So now we know origins, where we came from. God, not a monkey. But why are we here? So let me read that verse again, only this time I don't just want to read verse 26. I want to read uh, verse 27. I want to read 26, 27, and 28. And here's how it goes. Then God said, let us, by the way, that's plural. Who's God talking to? You suppose the Trinity's in there somehow? Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Oh, what does that mean? God is spirit. So that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And then verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Did you catch the purpose? So I like to say it this way. God did not give us two jobs. Job one and job two. Or job A and job B. <clears throat> But God gave us, it's like two simultaneous jobs that are wrapped together. And so instead of saying job one or two, because that would say one's more important than the other, I like to say it this way. God gave us, let's give it a color. 
God gave us job green and job blue. How about that? So what's job green? He said, I created the earth, I created all the life on the earth, I made this earth like a living thing, and now I am handing it over to you, human beings, male and female. Make the whole place look like the Garden of Eden. And then job blue. I created the first two people, male and female. And now your job is to fill the earth with people, with healthy people. So here we go, Moses' prologue to the book, the big swipe, God made us, he made us male, female. He gave us two very meaningful purposes. Both of them are creative. Both of them take what God started and brought to a certain point and hands it over to us. Make the earth like, like Eden. Fill the earth with healthy people. Now, as we look back over our shoulders, over human history, we see men and women, two genders. Not gonna go there. As we think of the two jobs, primarily, it's been the male who has subdued the earth. I mean, it's men who build cities and roads, who've built the bridges, who've built the dams, who've made the machines, who's done all that stuff. It's primarily women who have been involved with the family, who've raised the children, but we don't do it alone. We do it together. I mean, I can give you just a very little tiny picture of it. Five years ago, my wife and I bought a house. It was. It was in bad shape, it was dilapidated, it was old. And so before we moved in, we kind of, we gutted it and we redid it. And then we decorated it and we moved in. Guess who did most of the rebuilding of the house? My wife certainly helped. And guess who did most of the decorating? My wife did, otherwise it would look very much like a plain bachelor pad. Okay, so this is kind of how it is. And then think about job blue, if that's job green. My, God bless my wife and I with four children. I was very much involved with my four children, but guess who took care of them? Especially when they were little. With four of them all two years apart. That was full-time job. Guess who did it? So. We're male, we're female, we have these two overarching purposes, and I'm gonna talk about another purpose in just a minute. And we approach it a little differently, we approach it together. Now I'm gonna leave the prologue, I'm gonna to go to Moses' chapter one, it starts in verse four of chapter two, and here's how it begins. Verse seven. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. So here's what Moses does now. He puts the big brush down and he picks up a little brush. Now there are people who wrongly say about the book of Genesis that it has two creation stories and those two creation stories had 
different origins, and, there's, and those people are wrong. Moses does the prologue, and then he picks up the fine brush. And he says, when God made us, he started off with the man, the male. And he made him out of dirt. <laughs> That's what we are, isn't it? I mean, we eat food that started as dirt. I did a funeral yesterday. When we do the committal, it's always earth to earth, dust to dust, ashes to ashes. So God created Adam out of dirt. But he did it different than the animals because it never says of the animals that God breathed the breath of life into their nostrils and made them a living creature. Now, in this first chapter where Moses picks up the fine brush, there's some interesting things in there. Did you know three times in our Genesis chapter 2, God says to Adam, you got to work? This is before sin entered the picture. Three times. So, before he created him, Genesis 2, 5, there was no one to work the ground. So God created Adam to work. You read a little further on. Verse 15 of our chapter 2 says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Oh, well, that goes back to purpose green, right? We're supposed to be creative. And then there's a third time, it doesn't use the word work, but this third one, Adam was supposed to use his brain. Because in verses 19 and 20, it says that Adam was supposed to name the animals. Now I'm gonna tell you, I'm sorry folks, I do not think this took you know, three hours or six hours. I think this probably took weeks, months. Because I think Adam studied the animals. I think, he I think it's a scientific thing. I don't think he said, that's a duck, that's a cow. You know, this is going to be a pig, that's going to be an eagle, this is going to be a robin. So he's got to use his brain. There's different kinds of work, aren't there? And somewhere along the way, Adam wised up. And Adam said, hmm, male, female, male, female, male, female, male, no female. And for the very first time in the Bible, we hear that something's not good. Not good that Adam's alone. So here's where we read. God caused him to fall into a deep sleep, opened up his side, took part of the side out. From that, created the female. Closed it back up. I remember a sermon I heard. I think I was a boy. I don't know why I still remember this. The the preacher said it this way. God took a part from Adam's side so they could walk together through life side by side. He didn't take a part from Adam's foot so he would walk on her. He didn't take a part from Adam's head so she would rule over him. And I think that was a good sermon. Part from his side were to be teammates. So now we have male, female. God made the man first, then he made the woman, 
We're made out of dirt. She's made out of better stuff. Okay. But before we go to the next chapter in our English Bible, I want to point out a few more things. They're in a place called the Garden of Eden. It was fashioned by God. And we are told that there were trees in the garden for food. And here's how I believe. I don't think there was, you know, a little tiny orchard. I think there was a forest of fruit trees, of nut trees. I think there was an abundance because God never does anything halfway. And then it says there's two special trees in the garden. One's called the tree of life, and the other is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Think of that tree of life. You've, you've read the Bible, you know, you come to the end of our chapter 3, and Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden so they won't go back into the garden and eat from the fruit of the tree of life and live forever. Did you know we don't run into that tree of life again? Well, there's one mention of it in the book of Ezekiel. But we don't hear about the tree of life again until, you know where? Right at the end of the book of Revelation, the tree of life is restored to us. So it's like all of human history is this giant detour. And the giant detour includes suffering and pain and death. But someday, the tree of life will be restored. But then there's a second tree. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why did God put that tree there? Think of the name. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What do you suppose it means that God breathed into human nostrils the breath of life and made us living souls? Well, because we're made in the image of God, who obviously is a moral being. And, he, and we needed to know the difference between good and evil. And so one tree is put there, and God says of that tree, Adam, don't eat it. The fruit of that tree is poison. Don't eat the poison fruit. If you do, something horrible is going to happen. Don't eat it. Why do you put it there? So we would learn the difference between good and evil. Think of Ravi Zacharias's four questions. Origins, where did we come from? Purpose, why are we here? Morality, how do we know it's good and bad? Well, God gave us the Bible. Okay, now we come to the, the next chapter, our chapter three. Adam and Eve are there in the garden. Everything is fine. They have food. They've got plenty. They've in chapter three, suddenly, out of nowhere, comes Satan. We're not told where he comes from until much, much later in the Bible. We're not told anything about him except he shows up with Eve and says to Eve, well, did God really say, don't touch the fruit of that tree? Did God really say that? Yeah. And then we have the first lie. 
Satan says to Eve, if you eat the fruit that God says is poisoned, you will not die. But you'll become like God. God's holding something back from you. And so Eve ate the fruit. Then she took some of the fruit to Adam and said, hey, this is good. And Adam ate the fruit. And by the way, guys, I'm sorry, I cannot let us off the hook. You know whose fault? You know who's blamed? The only person in the Bible who blamed Eve was Adam. Do you know whose fault it was according to the rest of the Bible? It was Adam's fault. And we come to the New Testament, and do you know what the New Testament tells us? Eve was tricked. She was deceived. But for Adam, it was an act of open rebellion. And Adam's held responsible for it. What happens next is so informative. First thing they did, whoa, we're naked. We got to do a cover up. And so they start the cover up. And guess what, guys and gals? We have been doing the cover up ever since. We're very sophisticated at it. And then it says, in the cool of the evening, the Lord God came down to the garden to commune with the man and the woman. You know something? That had to be the best part of the day. You know, Zacharias' four questions, purpose, in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of our Genesis, we get purpose. Oh, we're supposed to be creative. We're supposed to work. We're supposed to have children and raise healthy children. And all of that is very rewarding and healthy. But you know what the best part of our purpose is? To worship God. That's what we were created for. You know, I thought many times on a Sunday morning, there's people all over Peoria. Maybe they're just waking up right now. And if they think about us, they're probably thinking something like this. Oh, those poor saps who had to get out of bed and go to church and be bored to tears. You know what I think? Those poor creatures of God who have not discovered the whole purpose of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. There's our purpose. It's not just work. Part of it. So the cover-up starts. In the cool of the evening, the Lord God comes into the garden. And what do Adam and Eve do? They hide. Guess what? We've been hiding from God ever since. That's the truth. So God says, Adam, where are you? You know, I have some little grandchildren. And many of you have children. Some of you maybe have grandchildren. Have you ever played hide and go seek with like a two-year-old? Charlotte, where are you? I'm hiding. Where are you hiding, Charlotte? I'm behind this chair over here. I can see half of her body hanging out. She's not a very sophisticated hider. Adam wasn't a very sophisticated hider either. Where are you, Adam? Like a two-year-old. I'm hiding. He wasn't very sophisticated in his rebellion at this point. He wasn't sophisticated like us. 
And then God asked them a question. I remember one of my seminary professors said, anytime you see God ask people a question in the Bible, it is never because God doesn't already know the answer. It's always because God wants us to think about the question. Where are you hiding, Adam? Did you eat the fruit of the tree? I told you not to eat. Then what Adam does is classic. He blamed his wife. And guess who else he blamed? Guess who he really blamed? He blamed God. That woman that you gave me, it's her fault. No, it's really your fault, God. That woman. Let me ask you a question. You think it was happy time in the teepee that night? You know what we have here? We call it broken relationships. And then, that woman that you gave me, it's your fault. We've got another broken relationship. It goes this way, and it goes this way. Do you see what sign I'm making? You know why Jesus came, folks? Don't forget this as a church. He came to heal broken relationships. First of all, between God and man. And secondly, between people and people. Marriages, families, friends, on and on it goes. He came to heal broken relationships. Now what happens? Now we have the judgment. There's going to be a penalty. In the judgment, God cursed Satan and he cursed the earth. He didn't curse us. You can be thankful for that. So he cursed Satan. Cursed are you because of what you have done. And then the first promise of Jesus. The woman is going to give birth to an offspring. He's going to do battle with you. He will crush your head. You will bruise his heel. But cursed are you, Satan. And then the judgment on the woman. Primarily, you know, that purpose that I called the blue purpose. Primarily women do that. From now on, Eve, your offspring, it's going to be very difficult for you. It's going to be painful. Your desire is going to be for your husband. He's going to rule over you. He's going to be bigger and stronger. He doesn't get pregnant. He doesn't bond with babies in the same way. And the history of mankind is that men have oppressed women. Welcome to a fallen world. And then he turns to Adam. Because of what you've done, Adam, the ground is cursed. I don't know exactly what that means. Except God says to Adam, what was going to be easy and probably hard work, but meaningful and not frustrating is now going to be hard. And you're going to do battle with weeds and the elements. And in the end, you're going to lose the battle between life and death. And there's going to be funerals. And then, <laughs> kicks them out of the garden. 
Now, what, what was this sermon about? God's plan for a man? <laughs> Where am I? How did I get off on this? What is God's plan for a man in the family? Well, I can tell you this. He is supposed to be the spiritual leader. This is why God held Adam responsible, not Eve. You can't have a two-headed monster. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother be united to his wife. The two will become one. But there can't be two heads. So what's God's plan for a man? In the marriage relationship, he is to be the, get this man, spiritual leader of the family. Do not leave it to your wife. It's your obligation. Hopefully, she'll work together with you. Now, why would I say that? Because specifically, this is what the Bible says. Men, did you know this? Ladies, this is, this is a real gem for you. Did you know that if you have a spiritual question, you're supposed to go to your husband and ask him for the answer? It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 35. Here's what it says. If a wife wants to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. So here's, a real, here's some real you know, discussion starters, lady. Sweetheart, would you please explain the Trinity to me? Darling, would you tell me the difference between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? Honey, how does grace really work? Explain to me, how could Jesus be God and man at the same time? It's called the hypostatic union. You know something, men? You ought to be able to answer those questions. And if your wife asks you, say, well, here's my best shot at it. I'm going to find out. And then go talk to Pastor Russ. Don't call me. <laughs> there are answers to those things. Here's, here's something else. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8 says this, speaking to men. Anyone, who's not anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Uh -huh. What's it mean to be the spiritual leader of the family? You see to it, the family is provided for materially. What's it mean to be a spiritual leader? How about this one? Ephesians 5, 25 to 27. He never says this to women, by the way. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to present her to himself as a radiant bride without stain, wrinkle, or any other blemish but holy and pure and blameless. Ah, what does it mean to be a lover? Spiritual leader of the family, especially if there's only gonna be one head in the family, you better be a lover. 
if men, if you could love your wives the way Jesus loved the church, she'd follow you anywhere. If you could convince her that you love her. Hey, how about this one? It's in the book of Ephesians also, chapter 6. It goes like this. You know, you would think as important as fatherhood is, there would be books on it in the Bible. You know how much there is on it? One verse. And it is profound, men. Here's what it says. Ephesians 6, verse 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. There's a negative. There's a positive. Now, I have four grown children. They're all married. I have, how many grandchildren do we have? Nine. And I have worked with people all of my life. And I understand, men, we are not wired the same way women are. When the Apostle Paul says to us, first of all, this negative, don't exasperate your children. Don't put too heavy a burden on them. I mean, you can expect a lot out of them, but be reasonable. They're little people. So then the, first the negative, don't exasperate them. And then the positive, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. I will tell you something. When dad says something, especially spiritual truth, it resonates with children in a way it doesn't when mom says it. I don't know why that is. I can tell you from personal experience, that's the truth. So the Apostle Paul gives us one verse on this important thing of child raising, and it's dynamite. Don't do this, but take charge of teaching your children spiritual truth. Moses said the same thing back in the book of Deuteronomy. If you want to understand the Old Testament, you need to, to do this. The key book to the Old Testament is the book of Deuteronomy. It's the giving of the law. It's Deuteronomus, the second law. It was Moses' last will and testament to the people of Israel. And then he goes up on the mountain and he dies. And he just left them with this. Three times in that book he said almost exactly the same thing. Three times. You think this was important? When Moses was speaking to Israel, do you think the men were thinking he's talking to the women? This was Moses. Here's, what, here's how it goes. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Ooh, that sounds like, that sounds almost like the Sermon on the Mount. It sounds almost like Jesus, doesn't it? You suppose Jesus studied Deuteronomy? These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. 
I guarantee you the men of Israel knew that Moses was talking to them. God's plan for a man be the spiritual leader of your family. If Moses said it three times in one sermon, it's probably important. If the Apostle Paul includes it as the only verse directed to fathers specifically in the New Testament, it is probably important. Now, I want to close with a, a true story from my church, my former church. Ray and Agnes Kimball had five children. They were godly people. Their second to the youngest daughter wanted to become a school teacher. And so, post high school, she goes off to school, gets her bachelor's degree, gets a job, teaches, went back, got her master's degree, and then she took a job teaching literally on the other side of the world. Agnes told me, we would call her once a week at 7 o'clock in the morning, and it was 7 o'clock in the evening there. It was, I think, somewhere in Indonesia. And she was a girl who really never dated, but there was a young man who was kind of interested in her. And he decided to go visit her at Christmas time. Now, to go halfway around the world, that's a pretty big investment, money and time. So he goes over, spent two weeks, visited her. I don't know how old she was. 27, I'm guessing. He proposed to her. She said, I don't think I can marry you. Why not? Because I don't think you would be the spiritual leader of our family that I need. And she turned him down. Oh, you know what he did. Came back home, found a little bimbo, married her, right? No. No. He came back home, changed churches, became part of a men's accountability group, started meeting with the pastor, devoted himself to spiritual growth. And when she came back to the United States, struck up the relationship again, and they got, they've been married 10 years. Guess what kind of a marriage they have? I think the kind God wants us to have. So here we are, man, Father's Day. God's plan for a man. Think of Ravi Zacharias's four questions. Origins. I'll guarantee you, you're no accident. Nor is your wife if you're married. Nor is the fact that you married her. <laughs> purpose. What's your purpose? Well, the ultimate purpose for all of us is to worship God. But then, you know, we have, do still have job green and job blue. Better be involved with it. Morality. How do we know right and wrong? It's in the Bible. Study the book. Put it into practice so you will become a little more like Jesus every day. And then destiny. Where do we go when we die? 
you know, I can't just stop talking. I have to stop by saying this. Male, female, married, single. Have you given your life to Jesus? Have you said to Jesus, I get it. You're the hope for this world. You're the hope for my life. I have messed a whole bunch of things up. Lord Jesus, I want to turn around. I invite you to come into my life. You take charge. I realize you died for me. You conquered sin and death on my behalf. I give my life to you. If you've never made a conscious decision, you know, Adam had to make a conscious decision in the garden, eat the fruit or don't eat the fruit. We make a conscious decision. Confess Christ, tie in with him, or reject him and go our own way. Have you ever tied in with him? We do it by faith. So if this expresses the desire of your heart, I'm going to just pray a little prayer. And you can pray this prayer if it's from your heart to God. He can look into us. He knows. And then I'll call Molly to come back up. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. Thank you for making us. Thank you for being patient with us, for not giving up on us. Thank you for the beauty of marriage in the family. Thank you for making us male and female. Help us, God, to become exactly what you want us to be. Bless these families in this church, the marriages. I pray especially for the, the men, the fathers. Help us, Jesus be like you. Help us to lead our families. Lord God, if there's any person here, you know our hearts who wants to give their life to you. If you want to give your life to Jesus, just pray this little prayer. Lord Jesus, I open my life to you. I believe you died for my sins. I believe you conquered death. I accept the forgiveness you offer. Come into my life. Wash me clean. And help me, Jesus, to become like you. In your holy name, I pray these things. Amen.